Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. It's the holiday season, making today's show on rail travel timely. Except these days, traveling by train in Europe is anything but timely. Take Germany, for example. The Deutsche Bahn, or German Railways, reported a decline last month in its already dismal record for 2022, with nearly one in three trains either late or canceled. The delays are so bad that neighboring Switzerland announced this month that it will cancel Deutsche Bahn trains to some of its cities because the German failure to arrive on time was messing up Swiss train schedules. That European region is not the only one with rail problems, as we'll hear from today's guests. Joining me in the studio are Hidden Europe magazine co-founder Nikki Gardner, the author of Europe by Rail, The Definitive Guide, and communications professor and blogger John Worth, whose grassroots cross-border rail project that was featured in the New York Times laid bare the many shortfalls of European rail travel. Welcome to you both. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. John, tell us a little more about your project and what you found. So the project allowed me to cross every internal border of the European Union that you can cross by train. It basically took me across the entire continent. So I went to the north of Finland, I went as far southwest as Lisbon and as far southeast as Athens. And what I wanted to find out was how well international trains work in all of those places. And indeed, there are certain countries like Greece, for example, which are completely cut off from other European countries because there are railway tracks, but there are no trains running there. Basically, what I discovered is when you cross from one country to another, everything gets harder by train. Even when trains run, they don't run as regularly or it's quite difficult getting tickets for them. So while there might be problems within individual countries, as you alluded to in your introduction, it actually gets even more difficult to travel if you try to cross from one country to another. And is this the case with every country? No, absolutely not. There are certain places where it works pretty well. So, for example, many of the borders from Czech Republic, for example, or from Austria, there the trains run quite regularly. But where the problems are, it varies quite a lot. It's not just something that's in perhaps some of the poorer countries of Central Eastern Europe, indeed a country like Portugal or even Spain to France. It's quite problematic. So the picture is a very mixed one. Nikki, on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you grade it uh, in terms of what uh, John's describing? Gosh, that's such a difficult question because we shouldn't forget that the great majority of train journeys in Europe, even international ones, actually do go without hitch and passengers get to where they want to get to on time. But of course, sometimes it does go wrong. And when it goes wrong, there's a tendency, if it's an international journey, for it to go gravely wrong. So lots of journeys will get a 10. Lots of journeys will get a one out of 10 because they're disasters. So perhaps it is about a five in the middle. But it'd be interesting to hear what John thinks. <laughs> John, what's your scale? Yeah, I'd, I'd, write, I'd put it somewhere in the middle as well. Um, in This summer, I had some uh, tremendous experiences and things that were wonderful trips and other places where I was stuck somewhere going, this is insane, Where what's breaking down here? So yeah, five or six, something like that. It's probably fine. I don't know. 2022 was the worst train travel year for me this year. I mean, in terms of trains being late, missing connections, not being able to find connections. But we'll talk more about, you know, some of the intricacies. Let me have each of you describe for me the main reasons why European train travel is facing problems. I mean, is it a lack of infrastructure? Is it the fact that cargo trains get priority over passenger trains? Is it staffing shortages post-pandemic or actually even train shortages? Or is it bad management? And we'll start with Nikki. I think the absolutely key thing here is that most trains within Europe are run by national train operators and their mindset over generations has developed to think nationally 
and to serve their home customer base first. And in that sense, I always see that the national rail operator, however well-intentioned, somehow their ambition flags, their interest flags, as they get towards the edge of their territories, as they go towards a frontier, quite suddenly services become thinner, the trains become less well-served and so on. And I think it's that frontier problem and getting them to think internationally getting them to think across borders. John has already mentioned a couple of examples of good players, the Czech Republic and Austria. I would throw in Switzerland as well. These are countries where the national operators are very well geared to thinking across borders. But sadly, it's not always the case. I'd, I'd agree very much with that. And also, I think there's also a political issue. If there is a debate about railways. It's often within that individual country. We think of our national transport ministers. If Berlin to Frankfurt is a problem, then the German transport minister is put on the spot. If Frankfurt to Paris is a problem, then, well, whose problem is it exactly? The French transport minister, the German transport minister, the European Union's problem? And so therefore trying to get that kind of political accountability of things break down is equally difficult. So that builds on the point that Nikki just said. Well, one of you had mentioned that Austria is actually a good country or a better example. And it was interesting because late this summer or early this fall, my friend Molly Dugan of Sacramento, California, recounted to me how she and her husband tried to travel between Budapest and Vienna. And it was just a disaster. It ended up taking them hours, you know, for what is generally a very small trip. And part of the problem was is there wasn't a lot of communication And it wasn't just a language barrier because the people who were waiting for this train, we all kind of, we became friends in that moment, right? We became a little five-hour family uh, trying to figure out how we were going to get to our destination. And we would hop on one train and somebody would tell us, no, that's not the right one. And then we'd try another one. And then we would wait around and someone would talk to somebody at the rail counter who would say one thing that contradicted what somebody else found out at another rail counter. It was just, it was very chaotic and frustrating. We eventually got on a train and it was comfortable. It was fine. Uh, But when we got to the border, the Austrian border, they switched trains and they made us get off of the train that we were on. It was supposed to be direct. And they said, there'll be seats for you on this other train. Don't worry. There'll be seats. We asked multiple times. Well, of course we get on the other train and there's not even standing room, let alone seats. And we asked the managers and said, you know, is there any place for us to sit? And they actually were really hostile with us and basically told us to go away, sort of acted like, you know, we were really bothering them. We spent about two hours standing next to a bathroom, you know, that was hotter than the temperature outside. So it seems to me that there's a real lack of coordination once you cross borders. I will say we're living in Poland right now and all of our train travel within Poland has been absolutely seamless. So we've had no problems, you know, traveling within countries. So it seems that the problems that we have had have been when we're trying to cross borders and that lack of coordination. John, are there other key problem areas? There are three countries that I went to during my trip that that just make me ultimately sad because simply you cannot rely on the railways really at all. Those are Latvia, Romania and Croatia. It's really a pity because also particularly Romania and Croatia have some wonderful train routes. But essentially, 
it's very, very hard to even plan, I discovered, through the centre of Romania because of chronic underinvestment in the network and therefore massive, massive delays. So when I see there also, for example, Croatia has the lowest percentage of the population that ever take a train. It's just one in three Croatians who take a train even once per year. Um, and so those are the places that ultimately are really at the very kind of bottom of the league. I think it's also very important as well to distinguish between how you plan a trip and how is the trip actually when you're on it. So during my project, I had absolute nightmares trying to plan my tickets for Swedish trains. But when I was actually there, the trains were really wonderful and wonderful scenery and very comfortable and actually comparatively punctual when I was there. So I think that's maybe a little bit the problem. It's not only what is the train like itself, but how do you actually find out what's going on, where the trains are even running? That's not always obvious either. Well, this is what uh, Molly Dugan had to say about trying to book tickets. So we were trying to get from Slovenia to Łódź in Poland. And so we're not talking about necessarily, you know, highly trafficked routes. It's not like trying to get from, you know, Budapest to Vienna, where there are multiple trains in point to point each day. But what ended up happening is because we were going through essentially three different jurisdictions, we were unable to buy the tickets in advance because one of the jurisdictions, Austria, in the middle, didn't open the purchase portal for the first leg until we were already on the road. So we weren't able to buy them in advance. So what we ended up having to do, because we had already uh, left home, we were already traveling and going from place to place, we paid a travel agent in Poland to monitor the website and get us the tickets and then have a courier send them to a hotel for us in Budapest. It worked out in the end, but of course it created some unnecessary stress for us. And it was more expensive than it needed to be because we had to pay someone to help us out. And that's again, counter to what our expectations were. So Nikki, is this common what Molly is describing in terms of having to go to separate countries to actually book tickets that are international? Or what do you advise people in terms of how to to book international travel on rail? It is all too common, sadly, Soraya. Uh, Would that it wasn't, but it is often far more difficult than it should be. We're beginning to see a new generation of ticket aggregators, companies like Rail Europe, which will sell you a ticket across frontiers. They will pull inventory. They will pull tickets from each of the different operators and combine it into a credible itinerary, which will allow you to go from A to B to C. And that works very well in the consumer market. Anyone can go to raileurope.com and book that kind of ticket. There's many others entering that market. Trainline is one that some of your listeners will have heard of. So that's one way forward. But ultimately, we still need to persuade the operators to adopt standards when it comes to fares information, ticketing information, timetable information, such that it actually becomes far, far easier on, for example, the German Railways website to book my journey, not just from Berlin to Warsaw, but also to my end destination in Poland. And uh, John, do you agree? I mean, is ticketing a crisis in some scenarios? Yes, it is. And indeed, that situation with regard to Slovenia, you can book every train in Slovenia with an online ticket. No problem at all. But if you want to book 
to or from Slovenia, you often need a paper ticket or you need to go to a station. And so that's exactly that sort of example. Now, ultimately, you need three pieces of information for a good train trip. They are the timetables of where the trains will go, the ticket to be able to book them, and then also information is actually everything going to plan on the day when you're actually traveling. So live running information. Now, in all of those three, there are gaps in the information. Now, I agree very much with Nikki. These tech platforms, a train line, Omeo, Rail Europe, they're doing their best. That is not their fault. The problem is, is they are not getting the data they need from the national railway companies to build a proper and complete platform. And so the national railway companies, have, particularly also the Polish railway company, for example, has many data problems. It's therefore difficult for those platforms to really build something that's really customer friendly. Uh, so I see that problem very much with the national railway companies, not those platforms that are trying to solve the problem. Is the cost then being passed on? I mean, you mentioned uh, these companies like Railway Europe or Trainline. You know, does that end up increasing the cost for the consumer if they want to travel? I mean, the fact that there is a third person, not the national operators that you have to go to in order to get tickets. Some of those operators do levy a booking charge um, of a couple of euros. Not all of them, however. It's for me very difficult to recommend which of those sites works best. For me, ultimately, it depends which region of Europe you're in uh, as to which one ends up being the better bet. Ultimately, I can't quite say this is the way to do it, basically. When I'm personally booking trips, I have 20 tabs open in my browser comparing a timetable here and a ticket price there. But there is a little bit of hope. There is a new piece of law in the European Union coming up this year on multimodal ticketing that should be able to solve some of those issues, ideally if the European Union gets that right. So there's maybe a little bit of hope on the horizon. Uh, Nikki, you wanted to add something? Well, I just want to say that in a way, John and I are almost the worst possible people to answer this question because we both travel by train so much and I know exactly which site I would go to to book a Norwegian ticket and I know exactly which site I would go to to book a train ticket in Latvia and of course they're different. And um, I think that uh, one has to sort of think of it more from the point of view of the would-be traveller, particularly somebody who comes from outside Europe and travels only very occasionally. They may be a little bit less price sensitive if I am buying a ticket for my daily commute, I absolutely know where I'm going to go in order to get that cheapest possible ticket. If I'm making a once-in-a-lifetime trip around Europe, then I think one might be a little bit less price sensitive. And then I think things like train line, rail Europe really come into their own because they aggregate a lot of tickets from a lot of people. And if I can just say one more thing, we have the beauty of the rail pass. Interrail, if you live in Europe, Eurail, if you live outside Europe. And that really is God's gift to rail travellers because it's wonderful that you've got a flat rate ticket which will take you through 30 or 33 countries. Except then you have to book reservations on the multitude of national sites? It depends where. Those interrail passes work very well in Austria, Switzerland and Germany. Those are the countries which are the easiest to use interrail. Interrail is a lot harder in France or in Spain. And then there's some other countries in between, Sweden and Italy, for example, it's generally doable. Ultimately, the only really two countries that give big headaches with Interrail or Eurail for me, they are France and Spain. 
Well, I'm not looking forward to that because I have an interrail ticket and I'm planning to go to France. <laughs> but, but there's an important point here. So there is an incredible community of people, and Nikki and I are kind of part of it online, who are very generous with their time helping with exactly those types of problems. We'll give you ways and means of getting around those issues. So basically, turn to Twitter, turn to Google, see what other users have managed to find as solutions. Don't give up. Also, get hold of a map, right? Just literally look, where are the railway lines? There's this wonderful tool, Open railway map uh, that can basically say hey hang on a minute there's a track there but I don't find a ticket for a train on it right so that's also part of the way that I can manage to plan the route so it takes a bit of determination but eventually there will be people who will help you out. I would say even in France I travel with Interrail quite regularly and it's worth remembering that only 10% of French trains are the high-speed trains called TGVs 90% of them are the much slower but I think much more scenic TER trains and interrail is valid on those without let or hindrance. You can just hop on and ride. You don't have to make a reservation. Oh, that's interesting. It's good to know. So obviously part of the attraction of rail travel for many people and for many governments is the climate friendly aspect of it. I'm wondering how all these shortfalls we've been speaking about are affecting EU countries plans to curb climate change. And we'll start with you, John. Ultimately, lots of national transport ministers pay lip service to that. Of course, we want to invest in rail because it's the greenest transport mode, not only for passengers, but also for freight. But the difficulty is, is the implementation of those plans. So we've just heard this week that Deutsche Bahn in Germany, for example, has said, uh, actually, our shift to get more and more railway passengers is actually, we're not going to be able to meet our targets for increases of passenger numbers because investment in the lines is proceeding so slowly. All over Europe, there are there have been great plans which have not actually been brought to fruition. So ultimately, there's a lot of talk about that, but I wonder about the quality of the implementation, both nationally and from the European Union level. Nikki, should individual countries be solving their rail problems or is it better left to the European Union? No, I think ultimately the first responsibility has to be with individual countries. And I think one has to think very, very carefully where are the sensible points of policy intervention that are best made at the European level or by cooperation between countries. Now, one of the things I feel quite strongly about is that we need to have incentives for decarbonisation. There is enormous competition to use the tracks in Europe. And I would see a long-distance train which is perhaps carrying several hundred passengers over a very long distance, I would see that long-distance train as actually making a substantial contribution to the climate issue, to decarbonisation. But if that long-distance train always has to go slowly and is behind a local train, which belongs to a national operator, because the national trains get priority, then something is clearly, clearly wrong. So we need interventions to make sure that there can be some incentives for trains to run these major cross-border international services, which really are the ones that are going to make people switch from plane to train. John, do you agree? Or do you think that the EU needs to take a bigger role? So I I generally agree with that. Indeed, the European Union has made finance available, particularly for investment in tracks, the so-called Trans-European Networks Programme. But part of the difficulty is, is the individual countries themselves that have to bid for the money 
out of that pot. And very often, there's one place I went in my project, and it, it, the border between France and Germany, we're on the German side uh, at Freiburg, they want to bid for money from the Trans-European Networks Funds. But on the French side, they don't. So the European Union says, hey, we've got money for you here, but this one country wants it, and the other country says, we're not keen. Um, so those are the types of situations. What I would at least like from the European Union is more clarity about what does and doesn't work. Now, that was what I managed to gather in this project from the borders of Latvia and Lithuania through to the problems at the borders of Portugal and Spain. What I found very much is the European Union doesn't really itself very much know what exactly is going on on the ground. And so some of those places, we need new lines, right? There are places, particularly in Germany, where the tracks are falling apart and you genuinely need investment in the tracks. But there are other places, Spain most notably, where the tracks are in impeccable condition, but you have only two or three trains a day running on each line. And so what you need to ask yourself at the beginning is, what is the maximum potential that we have in any given place at this particular moment? Where can we maximize that potential, move forward rather quickly? And there are plenty of places in Europe where the infrastructure is in a good state, but the trains are not even running. And indeed, later this week, I'm going to a place at the border of France and Belgium, where those two countries are closing a cross-border passenger train, despite the fact that the infrastructure is in a really good state. They're just saying, we're not going to run any trains any longer there. Now, so those that's the situation as I see it is, is are we making the best use of the infrastructure that we have? And my answer to that is in at least three quarters of the countries in the European Union, the answer is, particularly on cross-border trips, we're not. You wanted to add something, uh, Nikki? Yeah, what I would really like to see is a little more, bit more joined-up thinking on the part of the European Union. I would really like to see funding and infrastructure projects being linked to very, very clear requirements on the number of trains that will yes. be operated, and not just for the next year or the next year or two, but for a decade or two hence. It seems to me a travesty that there was enormous investment made into a new tunnel under the Eastern Pyrenees running south from Perpignan into Spain. And the number of trains on that route has never justified the investment in the tunnel. And as it happens, just um, in a few days' time, um, half the trains which are being run through that tunnel are actually being axed. This is absolutely wrong. That's craziness. Absolutely <laughs> crazy. On the other hand, other side of Europe... We see a bit of bright light in mid-December when um, a route between Poland and Lithuania, which was completely rebuilt and has had a woeful cross-border service. And now, thank goodness, there's going to be a daily intercity train from Krakow and Warsaw into Lithuania. And that's something which I know John has fought for for a long time that's one of the few places where it's improving. There are a few others in Central Europe as well. There's um, a new night train service just opening now or later this month from Prague to Zurich, for example. Better services are on the horizon between Austria and Italy. So it's not all a bad picture. It's mixed. Some places getting better and other places it's worsening. Hey, even close to here, we've got a new line across the border from Guben into Poland which has just had a weekend service, but from mid-December is going to ramp up to being several times a day and every day of the week. So some good news too. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about European rail travel woes and how we can solve them. Stay tuned. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. 
Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8-10 to minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me to talk about problems in European rail travel and how to solve them are Nikki Gardner of Hidden Europe and blogger and professor John Wirth of the Cross Border Rail Project. Nikki, there's a lot of consumer interest in night trains as potential time and cost savers, as well as an eco friendly option to get across Europe, whether for business or vacation. So, why aren't there more night trains? Well, the growth in night trains, as you suggest, really has been one of the big features of the immediate post-pandemic era. And I think it's first just worth looking as to why that has taken place. First of all, it's very clearly situated as part of the green debate, and it's a credible climate change option for longer journeys to switch to night trains. But I think, Soraya, there's actually something else, and that's that people use the pandemic to rethink their attitudes towards space and particularly towards personal space. And there is a wonderful sense in which a good night train with the privacy of your own couchette department, perhaps shared with your family, or even a a solo occupancy sleeping berth, gives that kind of cocooned comfort and that sense of privacy and space that we now particularly value after the COVID interregnum. So that, I think, is the important context for the growth. Why aren't there so many... One of the major issues is the shortage of rolling stock. We really don't have enough good, high-quality, modern sleeping cars to serve the demand that is there. Now, we can talk about what might be the issues in order to make the entry level lower. How can we let people get new sleeping cars? Uh, But at the moment, the absolute shortage of rolling stock is a key issue. John, night trains, I mean, is this something you've advocated for? Absolutely. And I've been working a lot on that policy. It's worth saying that there is one country that's performing impeccably with regard to night trains. That's Austria and Austrian railways. They've already expanded their routes somewhat. And they are the only company in Europe that's actually ordered any new trains. The first ones will be running from the middle of 2023, notably on routes towards northern Italy from Vienna. But the problem is, again, it comes back to what Nikki said right back at the beginning of the show. Most railway companies think nationally. And by definition, almost, a night train will cross a border somewhere. Our countries in Europe are pretty much all too small to have to have a night train of that distance, like something over 600 kilometers or so whatever that would be, 450 miles within one country. And so that requires collaboration with your neighbors. So the big players in European railways, like Deutsche Bahn in Germany or SNCF in France, they could offer night train services if they wanted to, but they don't want to. They have considered them to be complicated because you have to deal with your neighboring country and 
either not very profitable or loss-making, which was correct in the past. But as Nikki correctly says, our travel behaviors are changing. There is a bigger demand for very long-distance green travel, and night trains fill that niche. Now, it's very important that Deutsche Bahn in Germany has researched passenger behavior. The moment a train trip gets in the daytime over four hours in length, then rails market share declines and people take to something else instead notably the plane. Now, a night train gives that opportunity to say, hey, right, if you can sleep in the train, that saves you a night in the hotel at your destination. And that allows you to cover those really long distances that most people simply would not take in a daytime train. So Is that it? four hour threshold might get nudged up to eight or nine hours. Or right, more. it could be. But of course, you also need to have a nice environment in the train, right? If Can you work there? Have you got a dining car? Have you got reliable Wi-Fi? Those types of things can nudge that number up, right? Mm-hmm. But if you've got something 12 hours in a night, train, then you can reach enormous distances. And indeed, if Europe to ever achieve what the, the Chinese have done, which is to have high speed night trains as well, like at 250 or 300 kilometers an hour, so 186 miles an hour, then you could be covering large parts of the continent with night trains. But unfortunately, none of our railway industries, the railway operators have really got that amount of of aspiration uh, to really offer services like that. The Austrians are pretty much the only ones who are really heavily investing in this. So is that four-hour threshold increasing, though? I mean, it's not that easy to travel by plane. You have to get to the airport. You have to go through security. You can only take so much luggage. There are so many delays right now in, in plane travel as well. It just seems to me, I mean, for me, for example, the threshold tends to be nine hours. But, <laughs> but according to Deutsche Bahn's research, so Deutsche Bahn researched it very, very deeply right. on the Munich-Berlin route, which used to be six hours, and then they built a new piece of line, and it dropped to four hours. And rail's market share on the route jumped from 20% to 50%, at the time of the reduction from six to four. Now, what is also really important behind the scenes of that is what type of passengers are you trying to reach and how do they live their life? Now, what rail in Germany is not too bad at, but for example, in France is really bad at and on international routes is quite bad at, is can you go for a day for a business trip to your destination and get back that evening. Now, that means a crazy, unpleasant early morning flight sometimes. Now, that might also mean a crazy early morning train to get to a 9 a.m. meeting. Now, if I'm leaving from Berlin, I can get to Cologne for a 9 a.m. meeting if I leave on the train at 4.30 a.m. Now, it might not be the nicest, but it will work. If I'm in Frankfurt and I want to get to Paris, which is a trip which is even shorter than Berlin Cologne would be, the first train goes too late. I can only get to Paris at after 10 a.m., which might mean I've missed my business meeting. So it's not only the trip time. You need to make sure you've got journeys around the clock from really early to really late to mean that people can also then really rely on the train for whatever they're doing, right? Business trips, maybe off-peak, you need cheaper tickets for people who've got that flexibility or that those differences of times. So railways are better at solving those sorts of things nationally than internationally, though. A half century ago, an international first-class rail service called the Trans-Europe Express Network connected 130 cities from Spain to Austria and from Denmark to southern Italy. The EU was looking to create a 2.0 version of the TEE, and member states signed a letter of intent in May 2021. Now, John's already shaking his head before I even get to the question. So does this mean you don't think this will actually happen or no, should I, it happen? <laughs> so it was actually initially before the EU jumped on that. It was actually an initiative of the ex-German transport minister, Andy Scheuer. And it goes into something which frustrates me in railway debates, which is looking very much at the past as a way of a motivation for the future. Now, Trans Europe Express and also the Kraftwerk song with the same title and so on, as this kind of era of 1970s railway travel. But it was 
First class only, the tickets were very expensive. It was not something that a large part of the general population could even take. And indeed, the 1970s were a decade where there was a massive reduction in railway travel in favour of the car. And so therefore, that really worries me as a kind of blueprint. Now, what Andy Scheuer and indeed then the European Commission's plan looked at was basically was uber long distance daytime trains. They wanted a Paris to Warsaw. Now, one Paris to Warsaw each day, for me, that's neither here nor there. What I want is many Paris to Frankfurts, many Frankfurts to Berlins and many Berlins to Warsaws, right? So it's to make sure that all of the people across all of those pieces of that trip would all be really well served, not just one a day, very symbolic long distance route. So I think it started a debate of some sort about railway policy, but how that would actually work in practice, there was never really a practical plan there. Um, and so therefore, um, I'm a bit sceptical. Nikki, are you sceptical or do you think this is a solution that we need? Absolutely sceptical. And I um, think it's right that we shouldn't look to the past as models to the future. But what I would say about this conversation is that we are focusing a lot upon the needs of business travellers and focusing a lot upon a group who have a particular concept of time and how they value it. Now, John and I are perhaps very similar in many ways, but very different in one key way. I absolutely love journeys. My dad lives in Scotland and I travel here from Berlin to Scotland five or six times a year to go and see him. And I always go by train and ferry. Really? How long does it take you? It takes me two days each way. And for me, it is time out. And I really don't mind. I don't need a TE version two um, (laughs) because I'm really happy to change trains along the way in just the way that John suggests. But I think the key point is for all of us to think about journeys. The focus in travel for so long has been on destinations and the pleasure of the journey is eclipsed by anticipation of arrival at the destination. And what I think I'd like to see so much more as part of the revival of rail travel is a valorization of the time on the journey itself because that's what's going to nudge that four-hour threshold up to the nine hours that you, Soraya, will tolerate and perhaps even beyond that. Well, I actually, I agree with the two-day journey. We have a little house in southern France, and we tend to do that. We'll spend the night in Lyon and then go on, you know. But it again, it's a struggle. You don't have necessarily as many options time-wise. Mm. The trains themselves, I find the quality, like, you know, you don't have bathrooms that are working or the seats are messed up. I mean, it just seems like, as you say, the rolling stock perhaps isn't there. I don't know. It just... It hasn't made rail travel as pleasurable as I remember it as a kid. I mean, I don't know how either of you feel. Do you have that sense that it's uh, declining? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I've, and also, just in response to your point, Nikki, like at an individual personal level, I can sit all day in a train and I love those long journeys as well. But I'm confronted after my project. People go, but most people will never take a train to Athens, John. And I, yeah, probably most people won't. So I'm trying to sort of put myself in the shoes of others, or I've been on work contracts in Yash in Romania, and of course I'll take a train for two days via the edge of Ukraine pre-conflict to go there. There are some really, really wonderful and impeccable trains in Europe, um, and trains that are designed in a really good way, that are comfortable, are a pleasure to use. Also, it made me really aware of design as well, because when I was traveling this summer, I had to take a folding bicycle with me. So I was quite, I had this bicycle on the, with a strap over my shoulder. 
trying to even navigate some stations with that amount of luggage is really hell. But then in other places, you reach the safety. Like, someone's done some really good thinking here, and this station or this train is a pleasure to use because it allows those differences in ways. Like, the regional trains in northern Norway are impeccable. Some Eurocity trains that cross from Poland into Czech Republic are really good. The high-speed trains on the main high-speed line through Italy, the best in Europe, extremely comfortable, very reliable and provide a service for all kinds of different types of people, which I also really like to see. So yeah, of course, there are some difficulties and some problems, but there are plenty of really, really good cases. And um, I think just probably it's maybe the starting point from where we stand here, right? From Berlin, and particularly kind of Berlin West or Southwest is particularly the places where in this summer there were many of the difficulties. But there are other corners of Europe where it works comparatively well and taking the train is still genuinely a pleasure. Well, I'd like to wrap up the episode looking forward or looking ahead. Do either of you or both of you have uh, thoughts about where rail travel is going? I mean, do you expect to see improvements? Where do you see those improvements? Where can we expect to see them more quickly? You know, where is it just going to forever be a struggle, whether at the border or whether in a national context? We've seen with Austrian Railways, Obebe, which John has mentioned before, we have seen with them an absolute model of how to be good international players, both in terms of Overnight trains, they have the best network in Europe, but also in terms of their cross-border services. And we've seen how it can be done and the rewards that can be reaped when it's done. So I actually am quietly optimistic because I do see a lot of good things taking place. I see the genuine sense now of improvements in international ticketing. I think people are sensitive to the fact that we are less tolerant than we were before of having flaky Wi-Fi on trains. So I actually do think things will get better. John? I would largely agree with that. Um, I see still a rather mixed picture. Definitely Austria, Switzerland, Poland, Czechia, Hungary, Slovenia, there I see really major steps forward being made. Um, impeccable modern trains, for example, although albeit still on quite slow tracks when I was in Slovenia this year, for example. Then there are some countries which you see both positives and negatives. So in Germany, for example, we see some of these difficulties with the reliability of the network. But German Railways has invested in an enormous new fleet of intercity express high-speed trains that should lead to an increased capacity and maybe in the medium term alleviating some of the problems. The ones that nag a little bit more at me are some of the countries in Central Eastern Europe where ultimately you need much more investment before anything can really be done there. So, for example, uh, Romania or Latvia. And then the ones still where I see enormous potential, but I'm not altogether optimistic it will be realised, particularly Spain and to some extent in France. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed picture. What I'd also like to say is also at the European Union level, transport policy in general and railway policy in particular has never been a particular priority for the EU. Now, with the EU massively needing to reduce CO2 emissions, it's high time that transport policy and railways in particular were to step up. Uh, and so I'm hopeful to actually see more practical action from the European Union. But that probably is only likely to happen after the next European elections in 2024 and with a new team in the European Commission. So there I see it's going to be a few years yet before we see major progress being made. 
That's our show for today. My guests are Hidden Europe magazine co-founder Nikki Gardner, the author of Europe by Rail, The Definitive Guide, and communications professor and blogger John Wirth, founder of the Cross-Border Rail Project. Thanks for being on Common Ground. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invite. Thanks also to Molly Dugan for her input. And thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. This episode is the last in 2022, and we look forward to being back with you in the new year. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. <laughs>